Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. All right, so today we're going to finish the book. And one of the things that I feel like is a takeaway, at least for me, that I'd like for you to see before we get in and start reading chapter 12, um, is the deep love that Paul had for this church and all of the churches. Um, It's easy to get lost in that when you're reading big chunks of the letter. Sometimes it's important to take a step back and see the forest um, rather than just staring at a tree. And one of the things that I believe is a takeaway for us is the deep love and desire that Paul had for the church and churches and the expression on the local level of churches that were meeting in these cities. For me, I don't want our church to lose that. And the reason why I don't want you to lose that is because Paul gave his life for these people so that these people would be able to gather and meet, so they would be able to study and grow and share their lives together. And I think that the response to this requires us to follow his lead and his love and his desire for that thing rather than the thing that we typically chase after. And what I mean by that is our desire to say, well, in this day and age, It's not really that important. Now I'm talking about church on the local level. I'm also talking about church on the global level. I'm talking about the idea that we as a people are a part of something bigger than just you. It is really easy for us as Christians to just only think about our relationship with God. Are we good? I'm praying to you. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I want you to maybe even kind of get involved in my family, but the idea that I am connected, I'm mutually submitting to other people in a community that is a local church often gets lost on us. We, in this day and age, are too quick to just assume that the local church expression is a club that we go to once a week, and after Sunday's done, we go to lunch, and then we don't think about it until it's Sunday morning, we gotta wake up and we gotta do it again. And that is the opposite of what Paul just spent 13 chapters teaching us. You follow me? You can't read his writings and see the passion that he went through in chapter 11, walking through all of his hardships, and and your takeaway be, meh, I can take it or leave it. Not really for me. Might be for me today, not tomorrow. The takeaway should be the same takeaway that Paul had. Our takeaway should be a passion and a love and a desire to be in community and sharing lives together because that's what he saw when he stared at Christ. That's his value system. And he's saying, hey, come on guys, follow me. Share in the love. I've got something here. I see something and I want you to share in it with me. Amen? So as we finish today, that's one of the big takeaways that I have for us. Now let's go to chapter 12. Let's start off in verse one. Uh, Let's go to six. So he's continuing from chapter 11, 
He ended chapter 11 boasting about his weakness. He says, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. Now, before we go on, just a side note, um, there's not like levels of heaven, right? It's not like, did you get into the third heaven? Like, did you get in? No, I only made it to two. That's not what it means. What he's referring to here is a common Hebrew understanding of the word for heaven. Heaven is three different places. Heaven is at night or, or during the day when you look up in the sky, the clouds they're floating around in heaven. That's, that's, that's heaven one, right, for the sake of argument. That's where the birds fly. That's the heavens, right? Then at night, you look out into the stars. Where the planets live, where the stars live, that's also a heaven. And then there's the place where the throne room of God exists. Heaven, that's the third heaven. Do you follow? So when he says, I, I know a guy who was caught up in the third heaven, He's not like, didn't get it, like it's not like a, he got his card scanned and he had a clearance where he was able to go through to the third heaven. He's talking about, I know a guy who actually went into the throne room of God. I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which uh, man may not utter. And on behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except in my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So pause right there because on the heels of boasting in his weakness. Last week, he was talking about being let down in a basket just so he could escape the king of Damascus. He was also talking about how times he's been in prison, how many times he's been shipwrecked and beaten, and how many times he's been drifted at sea. He shifts in chapter 12 and starts talking about a man who was caught up in the third heavens and heard God speak in an unbelievable way. And it was an experience 14 years ago that was like profoundly spiritual in nature. And then towards the end of like five or six, we find out in his very subtle way, he's talking about himself. So this sense that I know a man who was caught up in the third heavens, well, the man is you, you're the man. Paul is the guy who got caught up in the third heavens. So the question is, why, are, why is he refusing to reference himself as that man? And the reason why is because he knows that this, is ex- this experience that he had is exactly the kind of thing that this church is looking for. Because this is the kind of church that if they heard, if Paul led with this experience, the response to the church was, well, man, if God chose you for such a wonderful experience, um, then you must be special and therefore worthy of us following you. Because something happened to you, you are now credible in our eyes to follow. And Paul's whole argument is that's a false structure. 
You can't follow a person just because they said something happened to them. What you need to do is you need to listen to what they're saying and you need to watch the way they're walking it out. Because a lot of people are good at saying something but not actually doing it. Don't bother following those people. A lot of people look like they're good at doing the thing but they don't know how to articulate it and reproduce it in other people. Don't bother with those people either. A lot of people like to flaunt their spiritual credentials. I had this experience, I did these things, these manifestations happened, and this experience happened. I went to this conference and this thing happened. And Paul's like, great, I'm not devaluing that it happens because spiritual experiences do happen. They happen on a regular basis all throughout the Bible. We're not talking about them not happening, we're just talking about not using them as a form of validation. They don't up your credentials. But this church wanted that stuff, and so Paul knew that if he led with that, that's all they would hear or see. And so rather than leading with his experiences, he led with his weaknesses, because ultimately what he wants from these people is for them to follow his lead. I want you to think differently. I want you to stop valuing people who come in and say, I can do all these things, but don't actually do anything that's of value. I want you to listen to what I have to say and I want you to follow what I'm saying. Now the thing about Paul doing this to, Corinth, to the Corinthian church is it was, certainly was helpful for them and the way he structured his argument was helpful, but it's also helpful for us because this carnal side of Christian um, life hasn't left us. We still do this. It may be to a kind of a, a different degree, but the idea that our flesh really likes idolizing leadership or looking up to people for some form of salvation or validation or direction. This is like, we live in a celebrity culture. We love making people celebrities. We love lifting them up, idolizing them, fixing our eyes on them, putting them in a place of honor even to the point where we start making excuses for their sin. Things in their life are clearly out of balance. Oh man, but have you heard the guy speak? <laughs> we can forgive a few things because he's good. Paul's like, do you hear yourself? You know how easy it is to just say a thing but not live a thing? No, no, this comes first. I have, the, I have the ability to be able to speak into your life because I have done the work of walking this out. That's what Paul is saying. So somebody comes in and flashes a badge and says, hey, I've had all these experiences. Great, we're not gonna devalue the experiences. God's doing some cool things, but that doesn't bring any credibility into your life. What do you have to say? How are you living? This is Paul's argument. And it's helpful for us because when we start doing this in our life, it takes our eyes off of Jesus and it only positions us for more disappointment. We idolize these, these organizations or these leaders or these people. And then, without fail, a news report comes out, guess who cheated on their wife again? <gasps> no, really, are we really that surprised? Right? Like when we look at these these pastors who, like clearly they're playing to an image. Like they're not interested in the Word of God. They're interested in bringing a culture that they grew up in into the church and letting everybody know that we can continue to be cool and still follow Jesus. And then a news report comes out, 
oh, this guy had an affair. <gasps> Are we really shocked? Nothing about this guy's life said, I've forsaken the world. You're wearing the world. You talk like the world. And you're convinced that that's going to bring, a, it's, going to, it's somehow going to bridge so that people who don't want anything to do with Jesus would somehow turn their ears and listen. I don't know if you've read Matthew, but Jesus was pretty famous for saying the things that purposely drove people away. He had a knack for gathering a crowd and then ticking all of them off so that they left. And I don't know if you've been following, but like when he, de when, when he died, like uh, there, there was like three people around the cross. The dude wasn't great at pulling followers when he was alive and teaching because his message was very divisive. But then when he rose from the dead and we're talking new life, oh, then everyone starts showing up. But we think somehow we could do it different or better than Jesus. Oh, uh, well, man, all you had to do, Jesus, was just polish it up a little bit. You know, buy some more expensive sneakers. This is what the people really want. Paul's like, this is nonsense. You know what I do with my spare time? Spend it in jail because I'm preaching in the middle of the city and ticking off, you know, silversmiths. That's what I spend my free time doing. I spend my time being overwhelmed with the church and making sure that they have what they need and, and praying for them, not, not trying to get the, the, the latest advancement in society. So this idea that Paul is trying to continue or communicate is perpetuated through our churches because of the way we treat leaders, but also the way that our flesh really craves these supernatural experiences. Because if we're honest with ourselves, man, uh, raise your hand if you'd like to be caught up in the third heavens. I'm, I'm game. Okay, well, only some of you. The rest of you are lying. All of you, all of you would get in the line for third heavens. Hey, I'm there. I'd love to experience that, right? And then you come back and all you want to do is talk about how great it was. And you want to show pictures of, you know, look at this thing flying around. It's got nine heads. How wild is that? You know, and all of a sudden, all we're doing is sitting around talking about your experiences of that time you went to heaven, and this thing is forgotten, and no one's obeying it. And I keep saying, like, this, this is the representation of everything that God chose to reveal to his creation about himself. This is what, like, we don't get to say about God whatever you think or whatever you feel. We get to say about God what he said about himself, Right? So that's why this is so important. So this idea of referencing these supernatural experiences, I think they're attractive to us today because they're kind of a remedy to our mundane lives. They act as like, um, kind of like a, a hall pass to our obedience. I don't have to be obedient because do you see what God did to me? He wouldn't, he, wouldn't, he's, he wouldn't have done that to me unless he was happy with me. So whatever I'm not obeying must not be that big of a deal because look what he did. Well, he didn't, he, didn't, he didn't do that because of something that you did. He did that to, to show you something. He did that to reveal something to you. He did that to help you understand the separation between how holy he is. He's not, he's not stamping your library card and validating you. He's actually crushing you with this experience. But we take it as like, look what happened to me. Look what God did. It's the complete opposite of why he does this stuff. But our lives... We get so caught up in this, well, my life is just kind of boring, or I just need a new adventure, or I need some. What happened, look, most 
of your character development, the maturity that happens inside your heart, your transformation, it happens most often in obedience during the mundane, normal, boring, everyday life. That's where transformation happens. When you can say, I obey you, when I don't feel anything, when I don't see anything, I'm obeying you. That's when transformation takes place. Transformation, long-term transformation, doesn't happen predominantly in these like powerful spiritual moments. The, the idea that what you really need is just to get to church, to hear the music and the message is setting you up long-term to be a very weak disciple. When you were first saved, I can understand how that is important to you because it is a, a milestone. When I get to this next week, I'm gonna learn something new, I'm gonna grow something. But if you don't start learning how to like cook your own meals, you're gonna starve six days a week. That's, that's part of what we're doing here. You've gotta to get to, as a believer, this place where you're saying, yes, when I get there on Sunday, it's gonna be great, but it's gonna be great for, the dif for a different reason than it was when I first got saved. When I first got saved, it's gonna be great because when I got there, I'm starting to learn, I'm growing, this is all new. But now that I've been walking this thing out for 20 years, when I get there, it's exciting because it's an overflow of all the things that he's been doing during the week that I've got my eyes open to already. He's working, he's always working. And when I show up, we're just singing about the fact that he's been working all week long. We're not trying to conjure him up to start doing some work right now. He's already been doing it, and I've trained my eyes to see it. You see the difference? So Paul's dealing with a church that loves supernatural experiences. We get into the same habit. Paul's argument is that I was a man who experienced these things, but in verse 6, he says, I'm not sharing them as me having experienced them because I don't want anybody to think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. In other words, I don't want you to idolize me because of my experience. I want you to listen and I want you to watch and then I want you to follow my lead. And that is one of the huge components of this letter, this idea that Paul's sacrifice is not just for sacrifice sake. His sacrifice is for the purpose of making life choices that this church can then follow. How do I know what to do <clears throat> in following Jesus? Well, Paul volunteers, I'll give my life for this so that people can understand in a contextualized manner what it is that you're supposed to be doing. What do I do? How do I walk this out? Look at Paul. Oh, that's... And that carries on into us. People around you, oh, you say you're a believer. Like, what does that mean? Man, just watch my life. Come over to my house and eat dinner. Watch the way that I talk to my spouse. Watch the way that I raise my children. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Got it? Let's go to verse seven. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. Ooh, okay. That's a bold choice of words, Paul. Look, I'm gonna be honest with you. Being caught in the third heavens, it's pretty amazing. It is uh, ranked up there among some of the most surpassing greatness of revelations. I'm not gonna lie, it was amazing. So to keep me from being conceited about the surpassing greatness of these revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. 
But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul says in 7, to keep himself from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of his revelations, he's saying, I admit that even I am not immune to be conceited in these things. They were so amazing, they have a way of puffing you up. I don't want you to look at that. I don't even want that in me. God doesn't want that in me, and so he gave me this thorn in my flesh. And the reason why I did this is because just like for Paul, there's a pull in all of us to care about the wrong stuff. To chase those experiences rather than chasing obedience. What would your spiritual life look like if you spent most of your time practicing obedience and not chasing an experience? You'd be pretty mature, which is Paul's argument. If you practice obedience half as much as you spent time praying, God, just do something, intervene. Can I get to this place? Can I show up to this church? Can I just have a moment? If I turn on this worship song, will you just show up with your presence? Can you just do something? Can I just feel differently because I feel horrible about myself? God's like, uh, I already gave you a prescription for that. If you'll just quickly turn to the book of Psalms. Oh, I don't want that. I want something fresh, something new. God's like, no, if you just go here, surprisingly, I'll give you something fresh and new if you just read this. That's how it works. You submit yourself. You walk in obedience, and transformation comes. I'll do that thing on the inside, but like you're not a special snowflake. I'm not going to set you aside and just treat you differently than what I've commanded all of my other children to do. You follow? So what he's telling us here is that this thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan, Paul asked for it three times to be removed, but it was not removed because the thorn is meant to remind you that you are weaker than you think you are. This thorn grounds you. It keeps you, it keeps you from getting your head too far in the clouds and thinking that you are a special snowflake that is separate and different from everybody else because of the experiences that God chose to give you. No, this thorn, this pain, this suffering, it grounds you. So he's not gonna take it away. This is a thing you need, you desperately need this. Without you, you, without this, you just wander off constantly. So God tethers you with this thorn. Now, many people all throughout the ages have wondered, well, what is the thorn, Paul? What is, what is, what's the thing? Some people, uh, you know, their hypothesis is some kind of sickness or a speech impediment or some kind of persecution. We don't know exactly what the thorn is, but I think it's actually better that way. 
And the reason why I say that is because when we read Paul talking about his thorn and we don't get to know what the thorn is, and then he follows it up with, I want you to follow me, I want you to follow my example, then the fact that Paul left the thorn blank means we can fill in the blank with the thorn that God has given you to keep you from becoming conceited. Because if Paul writing 2 Corinthians 12 said, man, God, you gave me this, this bum leg to keep me humble, then the rest of us would say, well, I don't have a bum leg, so I guess I don't need to be humble. Because that's what we do. If it's not that exact specific thing, then it doesn't apply to us. So Paul leaves it a little bit ambiguous so that when we apply this in our own lives, we can fill in the blank with this understanding of the thorn and we can understand that God is trying to get all of us to be humble in different ways and that doesn't exclude you, it includes you. But the way he humbles you may be different. So Paul leaves it blank so that you can understand that in the same way God does this to Paul, he's also doing this to all of his people because he loves you. He wants you to understand that in that weakness, that's where he's strong. Now, this phrase, for when I am weak, then I am strong, this phrase in verse nine, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in your weakness. We're not saying that God is, is, is weak uh, unless we're weak, like he's not strong unless we're weak, like his strength is some kind of shackled. What Paul is saying is that God is always strong, but I'm really only aware of the, the, the levels of those strengths when I start embracing how weak I actually am. Because when I walk around with a puffed up chest, it's really hard for me to see all the different levels of his strength because I'm too busy thinking about my own strength. But when I start realizing how crushed I am and how weak I am and how little I actually can pull off on a good day, then I start needing him more. I start looking to him more. I start praying more. My faith starts growing and then surprise, his strength is perfected in my weakness because now I'm more aware of it. And so the invitation for all of us is, man, as low as you are right now, get lower. As broken as you are right now, get even more broken, because the lower you go, the more you see him. That's what Paul is saying. So learn contentment and weakness, because in that relationship of understanding your own weakness, you see more of God. Now go to verse 11. Since I've been a fool, you forced me into it, for I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not all inferior to these super apostles, even though I'm nothing. I shouldn't have had to say the last two chapters. I should not have had to ramble about all my experiences, but you forced me into it because you're being knuckleheads and following these um, lunatics. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Don't you remember the things that I did when I was in your presence? Verse 13, for in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you, so please forgive me this wrong. So here for the third time, I'm ready to come to you. And I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. I want you, not what you've got for me. These guys are lying to you, and they're telling you that I'm only here for the money when I didn't take money the last time I was here. I want you. I don't want you can, what you can give to me. I'm not padding my resume because I've got you on it as a church that I planted. I just want you. You are most valuable. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. 
I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? If I pour out this love to you, is really the return that you're gonna give me is, is not love in return? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent you? I urged Titus to go and send a brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that you have been defending yourselves to you? Is really your understanding of our relationship that you've had to hold up your guard the entire time we've been around? Is that really what you think about me and the, my fellow workers? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for you upbuilding beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, that you may find me not as you wish. So I'm afraid that when I finally show up, just like you have the wrong perception of me, I'm gonna find you, perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. That's what I'm afraid of. As much as you're afraid that I'm gonna show up and not be the man that you think I should be, I'm afraid that I'm gonna show up and I'm gonna find you guys embracing all these things I've been telling you for years to let go of. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you and I may have to mourn over many of those who have sinned earlier and if not repented of the impurity and sexual immorality and sensuality that they have practiced. So Paul is telling us, he's telling this church that his relationship to them is most like a father with a children, with his children. I'm not just a guy who planted a church, I'm most like a father to you and you're like my kids. Now this is a relationship that uh, most of us understand and it's, it's important for us to kind of lean into this and understand this because Paul's relationship to this church, the father-children relationship, it extends to what we expect out of church leaders today. This is the unspoken that we kind of assume should be operating at levels of leadership within the church. Many of you are much older than me, but in the, in the relationship component, what I'm doing is most like a father to his children. Most of you have raised children and now you've got grandchildren. So what role do I have to be any father figure to you? Well, only the role that is established in the New Testament between the relationship of a pastor and his church. In the same way that a dad cares for his kids and sacrifices and spends himself on his kids, that is what is expected of me in the eyes of God for the church, for his children. That is what should be taking place, not the other way around. The pastor doesn't exist for the people to, to, to serve him, to wash his shoes and his feet. And, wash his shoes, that's a, that's a, nobody washes their shoes. I got caught up in the moment. But the idea is that you, like the church exists to somehow like honor and, and, and praise and the church exists for the, the pastor. No, that's the wrong way to think about the New Testament church. What Paul gave himself for was this idea that the pastor, the leaders within the church are here to serve you. So the, so the structure of leadership doesn't look like, okay, someone got promoted, now they're going higher on the ladder like the world does. In the kingdom of God, what leadership looks like is we're getting lower, we're getting lower. The more you get promoted, the lower you go. Why do we go lower? Because lower means more servanthood. 
Leadership is not just more responsibility. Leadership is more servanthood. It means you're serving at a greater capacity. Why is that important? Because the greatest thing that a leader could do is model servanthood for you so then you can go follow it. That's why we have leadership. Not so you can look at me and say, oh, that's what I want to aspire to. That's what I want for my life. I, I, I want what he has. Now, I want you to be able to look at my life and say, I want to respond in the way that he serves, and I want to do it like that. I want to serve like he serves. And then we just get into a competition of outserving one another and outdoing one another with, one another with honor. Look, there's a, there's, a, there's a culture in church that we have borrowed from the Old Testament. And it's this concept of like Moses and the children of Israel. And we bring this forward into the New Testament and we kind of assume like, oh, well, that's God's man, right? And so like the way that God treated Moses to the children of Israel, that's how we're supposed to view the, like that's, that's nowhere here and that's not what Paul is, is teaching. Paul is saying if you want a comparison for what's supposed to be happening in the local church service, I want you to look at a home. I want you to look at a dad and his children. That's what it looks like. Okay, it's not Moses going up on the mountain and then everyone else just kind of kicking their feet and sitting around waiting for him to come back so we can hear what God has to say. No, 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 you go hear what God has to say for, him, for, for yourself. Just you go, you go into your prayer closet and listen. You do it, no way for me to do it, you do it. What is God saying to you? That's one of my favorite things to say when I sit down with other pastors or, or church folk when we have lunch. My first question, man, what is God doing in your life right now? Do you even know? Are you aware? Some of you are like, I need to take that so that the next time I have lunch, I've got <laughs> I, I to have an answer for that. But seriously, are we aware of what he's doing right now? Are we sitting around waiting for somebody else to give us an assignment? You know, the Holy Spirit's ready to give you an assignment right now. He's got work for you. There's plenty of work to do. And sitting around thinking that one guy or two people or three people who are on staff are responsible for disseminating all the work, that's the wrong way to think about the New Testament church. And that's what Paul is saying. This idea that I'm a father, I love you. Leaders like fathers don't take advantage of their children. They, they take the first step in initiating discipleship so that you can follow it and you can see how it's supposed to be modeled. We spend ourselves for you. We sacrifice and we put things, um, uh, we, we, we say no to things because it's better for the church if we say no to this stuff. But in return, in this relationship, it's not just one-sided. There's not just something, uh, Lyle, will you cut the ACs? I'm freezing. My, I can't finger my fingers anymore. <laughs> Give it. Come on. In this relationship, it's not just one side. It's not just the pastor who has responsibilities to the church. There is also a return. There is something that the church is supposed to be doing in the relationship too. And Paul outlines that in verse 20. The pastor is willing to spend himself for the people and the people in respond freely forsake quarreling and jealousy and hostility and slander and gossip and impurity. We don't take advantage of the people and in return the people agree to treasure Jesus above all other things. You agree to let Jesus work in you and through you. 
the people agree to rearrange your life so that Jesus is seen in everything that you say and everything that you do. And the benefit to this is that when this relationship is working correctly, then it lets me share in your joys and in your sorrows and it keeps me from wasting my life on a people who just want something for themselves. Do you follow? That's what's happening with Paul. He's concerned that all of his sacrifice and the weakness and the embracing of the suffering It's gonna be for naught because these people, they don't value it and they don't respond with obedience. I have no problem giving myself for him and devoting my heart to one thing and serving this church. But man, I'm gonna be honest with you, I would love some response in the form of obedience. And I'm not saying this because you're not, I'm saying that in the dynamic of this church and every church, that's the relationship take and give. That leadership serves the people and that the people respond with more serving inside and outside. That's, that's what fuels evangelism, right? We're waiting for like another great awakening. Do you know how that comes? Serving. It came the same way, it's gonna come the same way it came the first time on your feet or on your knees, washing other people's feet, serving. That's the next great awakening. People looking at a generation of believers and saying, we're not better than you, but God loves us and we're following his example. I'm opening my life, I'm living open-handed, and I'm sharing, I'm not holding on, I'm not hoarding, I'm living freely and open. That's what fuels evangelism, and that's what this generation is looking for, because no one else is doing it. Everyone is willing to share with strings attached. But when you serve with no strings attached, you look like somebody that's from a different planet. You're you're not of this world. You're right. My citizenship's not from here. I'm from a different place. And the invitation is to you as well. This is Paul's argument. This dynamic is nudging up something that he's going to kind of bring in in chapter 13. And it's this sense of like maturity. I'm going to come to you for the third time but when I come, I want you to be ready. And when I say ready, I mean something very specifically. I I don't mean just like, okay, we've got all of our ducks in a row. No, no, I I want you to be ready in the sense that you have now fully embraced what I've said and you're walking in maturity. Let's let's read it, go to 13 verse one. It says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent as I did when present on my second visit. And if I come again, and I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he's not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. You understand that? So we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. So Paul is defining the terms of his next visit. I'm gonna come to you for a third time, and we're gonna get serious about obedience and repentance and walking by faith and all the stuff I've been talking to you about. 
And I'm not just going to be heavy-handed for no reason. Everything that is brought up will be established by two or three witnesses. But the verdict, whatever is decided, it's not going to be weak. Now, what Paul is doing here is he's in a fatherly, loving way outlining what he expects discipleship to look like, what following Christ looks like. Now, look, it's not fun, but it is what roots out sin and purifies a people. In this culture, we, we hear this often, like, well, God, if God's love, then why, why would he do this, or why would he do that? Well, you'll understand when you have kids. Because while you love them, you set up boundaries in your home because you know that while they love jumping off furniture, and that gives them a great high, you're gonna end up in the emergency room sooner or later with the, a much, ser- much more serious issue that if we had just made a rule to not jump off the kitchen table. Well, well that's not loving. You're robbing them of the joy of nosediving onto the tile floor. You know how much fun that is for them? Yeah, it is fun. That ground rush is a riot until your nose get plastered on the tile floor. And then you've got a mess to clean up. As parents, we understand you you have to set boundaries. Love looks like setting boundaries. And you can have all the joy that you want, but don't cross that line. Well, that's not very loving to tell a child they can't just run into the road whenever they want to. What if it's their desire and they're just a runner? (laughs) I mean, this is nonsense, right? You get it. You've seen the parents screaming, Johnny, no! Like, why are you screaming at your kid? That's not very loving. Because if you don't, he's going to get hit by a car. That's why. So sometimes love looks like a firm hand. And that's what Paul is saying. In our relationship with God, there are boundaries. There are just things that you can't just do because you want to. Because if you do them, then you're not following him anymore. You're following yourself. And that's the opposite of everything that he's telling us to do. So what he's doing here is he's outlining the relationship. It's not going to be fun, but the goal here is I want growth. I want to root out sin. I want, to, I want transformation. So I'm going to bring correction at my next visit. But, but, I, but what I want is, is more than correction. We've gotten to a place where I'm going to have to enact some discipline, but really, that's not really what I want. I don't want every time for me to come to just be us sitting down and having a family conversation around the table because you guys can't keep your hands off each other and you can't obey what I told you to, to obey. That's not what I want. What I want is for you to start walking some maturity and learning how to self-test so that you do this for yourself all the time and you don't wait for me to show up, you know, uh, three times a year. And this is what he gets in when we go into verse five. So let's go to verse five. It says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, 
though we may seem to have failed, for we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. That's important. We'll come back to that in a second. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Any discipline I have to bring is not to tear you down, it's to build you up. But that's not really what I want. What I want most is for you to examine yourselves and to test yourselves. Now, in Greek, that word examine and the word test, those are imperative verbs. And for those of you who slept through English class, what that means is it's, it's a verb that is a command. All right, it is, it, it is expressed in the way where do this. So what Paul is saying is he's commanding the church to examine themselves and to test themselves. He's telling them essentially, I want you to look in the mirror and I want you to tell me what you see looking back at you. Can you see how this is starting to apply not just to them but to us today? The idea that it is awesome, praise God, for the people of God to come to church on a Sunday morning and hear the word of God taught and say, I got some things to deal with when I get home. Praise God for that. But where are the people that wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and say, what's looking back at me? Where are the people that all day long listen to the words that are coming out of their mouth? Where are the people of God who spend their time looking at their bank statements and their calendar and their text messages and their social media posts to examine whether what came out of their heart lines up with what God says about his people? Where are the people who are weighing their value system against what God says about himself? And finally coming to the place where, where you are honest with yourself, I'm not passing the test. So I need, to, I need to study up, I need to change. I don't need to wait until Sunday to get smacked in the face by the Holy Spirit to bring some correction in my life. I can do that on a Thursday morning. I can do that on Tuesday afternoon. I don't need to wait for somebody else to initiate I can test and examine myself. And what this is, is essentially spiritual maturity because in verse nine, when he says your restoration is what we pray for, the Greek word for restoration actually translates as a complete or a wholeness, an all around strengthening or a maturity. There's a commentary I read this week by N.T. Wright and he describes this word um, as less like a tree that bears fruit maturity and more like a machine that's running at full efficiency. That kind of maturity. So what Paul is saying is we're praying for this maturity that comes about in regular self-testing at the individual, the local church, the global level. We're, we're, we're praying for this to happen because what we want beyond anything else is for the church to be mature or functioning at full capacity. What we don't need is individuals in the church wandering off into self-gratification and idolatry and upsetting the system that God has established in his kingdom. What, like praise God that he leaves the 99 to go after the one, but how about the one just stop wandering off? How about the one just stay with the 99? 
so that we can function in some sense of maturity because there's a lot of work to do in this dark world and we're a much more effective entity in the world as a body of Christ being a light when two or three of us are not constantly wandering off at these other things that seem shiny and we wanna go check out. No, 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 back over here on the straight and narrow path. Remember, this is where we're walking. That's what Paul's saying. So he finishes this book in verse 11 through 14 with some final thoughts. So let's, let's, let's cover those and that's where we'll close. He says, so finally, brothers, rejoice. And then he gives us this list of things that he expects what a normal church should look like. He sees it and he wants to see it in the Corinthian church. And this is what I wanna see in our church. This is what I want for Red Hills Church. Rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. Greet each other with a holy kiss. We'll talk about that one in a minute. And speak the fullness of God over each of you. He says, finally, brothers, rejoice Aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and the peace will greet you, greet you one another with a holy kiss, all the saints greet you, and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So essentially the fullness of everything that God is, he wants it in our lives, in the lives of the church, in the lives of individuals. We should be speaking grace and enjoying the love of God and walking in the fellowship that the Holy Spirit brings between each other. And the reason why I say that as a thing that I want for our church is because for the days coming ahead, I don't know what's coming, but I get a spiritual sense of what is coming. And it's not brighter days, all right? What's coming, what's heading our way, it's not sunnier times. And so as people who are people of light, walking into increasing darkness, what we need most is to exemplify what Paul commands us to do in the New Testament, which is um, stop worrying about things that are not important and rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, greet each other with a holy kiss. That's a weird one. The reason why I bring it up is because not just because it's in the New Testament and it's a command for us, but because it's an expression of something much richer than what we enjoy now as the people of God. There is an expression, an outward expression to the way we treat each other that I believe is summed up in that phrase like a holy kiss. What he's saying is that in the culture, there's a way that you express the genuine love that you have for one another. Whatever that is, maybe it's not kissing, Whatever that is, let's do that. Maybe it's just the genuine warm feeling that you have when somebody that you know is looking out for you comes up and gives you a big grown-up man bear hug. That's a handshake, some kind of gesture. I don't know what it is, it's probably different for everybody, but within the body of Christ, there should be some expression of the genuine love that we have when we see each other. That's why the time between the end of worship and the beginning of the message is one of my most favorite times when we gather on Sunday. Because that four to five minute little buzzing around and meeting and shaking hands, that I believe is an expression of greeting each other with a holy kiss. This idea that, man, it's been a week, or maybe it's just been 
a couple days because I had you over to my house on Friday, but I genuinely am glad to see you today. It makes my heart excited to be able to share this with you. That's what he's talking about. And I would argue that in the coming days, what is found in 11 through 14 is what we're gonna need the most. We need to learn how to walk in grace and love and fellowship. We need to learn how to speak truth over one another. And man, I'm gonna be honest with you. This is where we're gonna finish. We need to get serious about prayer. Every week when we finish the service, we've got our prayer team that come down and I always express, I say, look, hey, if you need prayer, calm down. If you don't, just stay there. And for, the most, for most of us, like everyone just kind of stays where they are and that's perfectly fine. I'm not knocking that. But I am starting to push up against this, this, this reality. Do you really not need any prayer at all? For nothing? Have we come to a place as the people of God where we're convinced, I don't really need that. I don't, I don't need, I don't want don't want somebody in my business, don't want to share stuff. Look, that is more accurately a representation of your expression that you don't need his help than it is of, I'm just not aware of anything that needs prayer right now. Look, if, if you're actually acquainted and doing these self-tests, you got a laundry list of stuff you need prayer for. And what I want in this church, what I want as normal is people praying for each other. And it doesn't always have to happen down here. I'm not saying that we've got to now, everyone's gonna start flooding the altars. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is I want, to, I want, I want the regular posture around this church when you're walking down the hall to see two people just standing over there. It's kind of one, it's got his arms you know, over his other shoulder and they're just praying. That's what I want. I don't want prayer to be delegated to just a few people who are good at it. I want all of us being people who are hungry for the word of God, you know, needing each other and praying for one another. We gotta, for, for what's coming, we have to get more serious about prayer. And the takeaway from this entire study is that Paul cared deeply for the church and what he wanted to see in them he wasn't seeing and so he gave his life so they could see it and that's what I want for us. What he wanted for this church, I want to be expressed in this church. The fullness, everything he's got for us, that's what I want. And that's seen on Sunday mornings when we worship, that's seen in the way that we study, that's seen in the posture we take when we read this, that's seen in the way that we sing and the way that we pray for each other and the way that we evangelize and the way that we talk about Jesus to other people. It's expressed in thousands of different ways, but it all starts with right here, a surrender in here that he is greater than me. Amen? All right, let's close. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.